0: So thank you very much. And, uh, I'm also very grateful to the to Meditatio Center and to the to the world community for inviting me to give this talk today, or these several talks today. Uh, as Kate said, I'm I'm a computer scientist. I work at the Artificial Intelligence Research Institute, uh, which is located near Barcelona. But uh, I, in this talk, I will not, I will talk about, so I, I don't have a, a background in, in theology nor in philosophy, so I'm a scientist, so this talk that I will talk about, humility in science, is a, is a talk that I, I like to talk more about my own experience as a scientist, Uh, in relationship with also my experience as a a meditator of the word community. So on the the Guardian website uh, I read a few years ago an article by the paleontologist Mike Taylor from the University of Bristol portraying sites as uh, enforced humility. He claimed that All the particular practices we usually assign to good scientific practice, formal publication, peer review, correctly citing sources, the scientific method itself, replicability and falsifiability, all these practices ultimately guard us scientists of our natural overconfidence and self-deception. Formal publication because it brings our theories out to the public for all to read and verify, and once it's up there, it's up there. Peer review helps to correct our mistakes before the paper is published and it assesses its actual significance for the community, beyond just personal interests. Citing sources provides supports for our assumptions, as well acknowledge where our ideas come from, being grateful to all those that preceded us in the work. The scientific method helps to keep hypotheses, experiment and results and conclusions separate so as to make very clear what is fact and what is opinion. Replicability is about providing enough information so that others can repeat our investigations and check if they get the same results. And finally, falsifiability acknowledges that our theories are ultimately transient, leaving always the door open for them to be superseded in the future. So all these practices make us scientists very aware that our theories might be mistaken, either because of erroneous assumptions, wrongly stated hypotheses, Um, because uh, we have done insufficient experimentation, because of ignorance of of related research that we don't know, and faulty chains of our, our reasoning. So, except for the domain of mathematics, rarely the word proven is used in a scientific journal. And we scientists are always very, very careful of what we dare to claim in our publications. Furthermore, every every question science is capable of answering, many more are left unanswered, making us scientists conscious of the limitations of our own research and labour. However, this may not be the image one might have of scientists because more than often we scientists are not very humble persons at all. Uh, Shattering this picture with remarkable arrogance as I read somewhere. But still good uh, uh, good scientific practice constantly imposes humility upon us. Cultivating the virtue of humility has been considered by all wisdom traditions of humanity as a core aspect of any truly spiritual practice. So can we therefore think of scientific inquiry as a spiritual practice? This question, I think, might seem odd for the secular-minded person of today. But my objective of these talks here at Meditatio Center is to to reclaim the deep spiritual and contemplative core of scientific inquiry and to highlight the necessity to cultivate um, contemplatively driven science as an important value for the emerging knowledge and innovation societies of today. And the, the virtue of humility, the virtue of humility in science will serve me well as a starting point of this endeavor. And for this reason, in these talks today, I will draw from a wisdom text from the Christian contemplative tradition, a text that has shaped contemplative community life for 15 centuries, becoming thus one of the great wisdom texts of humanity. And this is the Regula Monacorum, the rule for monks, written by Benedict of Nursia in the the Apennine Peninsula during the turbulent times of the fall, after the fall of the, the Western Roman Empire. So Benedict wrote one of the longest chapters of his rule precisely on this virtue, on the virtue of humility. Now, at first sight, one might think that a guide for monastic life in the 6th century hardly may be of any use for a scientist of the 21st century. So clearly life as experienced by a monk in a static pre-industrial agrarian society does not resemble much with that of a scientist in a dynamic pre- post-industrial knowledge and innovation society. So consequently the language of the rule of Benedict is sometimes is something usually rejected by today's secular mind. But without going deeper into the experience that has sustained this text, sentence after sentence seems to be of no use at all. However, if we are capable to look through the text into the wisdom it harbors, if we are capable to transcend the mythic symbolic language grasping the axiological knowledge the knowledge about the values it is pointing at then we suddenly are exposed to great pearls of of many pearls of great price so for this re-reading that i'm going to do of this chapter of the rule of benedict i will also reuse many of the ideas that uh, others have inspired me. Cassia Maria Just, Joan Cittister, um, Wilderske, André Comte de Sponville, many others have shamed the ideas that I am going to, to say here. But I would have not been able to relate them with my own scientific practice if I did not come into touch with the world community for Christian meditation, and the teachings of John Mayne and Lawrence Freeman, which helped me to build up a regular practice of meditation and experience silence by myself. And I I would not have been able to put everything into words again if I did not share my reflections with my former PhD advisor and colleague, Jaume Agusti, who has significantly, significantly shaped my way of thinking. And I'm very grateful that Jean is here with me, here, because he has his daughter and grandchildren in Reading, and he's visiting. And when I told him that I was giving the talk today, he decided to join and, and come also to this event. And these talks, actually, have grown out of a shorter talk that I gave five years ago uh, at a homage we paid to Jean Augusti at my research institute, on the occasion of his 65th birthday. In our modern societies, humility is often interpreted in a negative way, as a lack of self-esteem, a a devaluation of one's own actions combined with an over-evaluation of that of others. When reading Benedict's chapter on humility, one might be easily drawn to this interpretation. However, humility should not be confused with lowliness, that is, the deprival of what one is worthy or the ignorance of the value of oneself, which certainly cannot be considered a virtue at all. Actually, humility arises from a profound self knowledge about one one is not. It triggers an attitude of self mercy and contentment with what one actually is, and leads to a sincere compassion and service for others, opening oneself to be transformed by it. So this ultimately liberates from egotism, from arrogance, from excessive ambition and presumptuousness. Now, humility is a very paradoxical value. Those who presume to have it, show that they actually don't. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That is the Gospel versicle that Benedict uses at the very beginning of this chapter on humility, just to illustrate this paradox. He also resorts to the image of a ladder, a metaphor of personal growth or progress that is now very much rooted in in Western culture, by by which we may reach the highest summit of humility. And he lays down 12 steps, 12 steps of humility and discipline that we need to climb. But here's the paradox again. We descend by exaltation, and we are sent by humility," he reminds us. Now this, I think, is very far away of mainstream current scientific practice, as we would say. So as I mentioned, we scientists are often not very humble persons, and during our professional career we are driven constantly to exalt ourselves. So, Fortunately, the scientific practice itself brings us always back down to Earth. So the etymology of the word humility comes from the Latin humus, which means Earth. Now for the talks today, I will group these Benedict's 12 steps in the following way. Step out, step one, I think sets the background and necessary condition for humility. It's a, it's a state of awareness, uh, a level of consciousness, called dei, fear of God, in, in the Christian tradition. And it's also the longest one of the steps, so it sets the background of, these, of, of the whole chapter. Then I grouped steps two to seven, which I think show the attitudes that we should cultivate for humility to grow in each of us. Namely, to detach from egoic will and desires, to recognize those more experienced than us and to listen to them attentively and lovingly, to patiently endure adversities and injustices with a silent awareness, To be open and trusting with those guiding us in life as to our erroneous thoughts and actions. To be content with what one has and is. And to realize, ultimately, that we are nothing at all. And then step 8 to 11, I think, situate this humility in the context of community. Namely, to value previous experience, whether compiled in rules or norms, or personally lived in leaders of our community. To create silence and to listen to others before expressing one's own thoughts. To respect others, not ridiculing them or making fun of their ideas. And to choose one's words sensibly and carefully. And then finally, the last step, the step 12, asks for an integrated and holistic experience of humility in all dimensions of the person, body, mind, and spirit. So in the remainder of this talk, this first talk, this morning, I will reflect on the first of these steps from the perspective of the practicing of science. And in the other two talks, I will tackle the other steps. So, the first step. The first step of humility, then, is that a man keeps the fear of God always before his eyes and never forgets it. That's what we read in, the, in, in Benedict's Rule. So I understand this biblical concept of timor dei, fear of God, as expressing an experience, an awareness, we may say, that can be characterized by the intense feeling of awe and wonder, so familiar to many scientists. Let me quote, for example, these words by Richard Dawkins in an interview. Spirituality can mean something that I am very sympathetic to, which is a sort of sense of wonder at the beauty of the universe, the complexity of life, the magnitude of space, the magnitude of geological time. All those things create a sort of frisson in the breast, which you could call spirituality. So this frisson in the breast stems from a direct, immediate experience of this absolute dimension of reality, of reality as it is, really set free, absolutus, from own limited experience and the limited existence and the life-conditioned necessities of us human beings. So, science ultimately originates from us, humans, experience awe and wonder, from being aware of reality as not dependent on us, on what we think or desire it to be. So, science is the result of stepping back and gazing at reality simply as it is, with no preconceptions, and in turn, scientific research is an excellent way to continuously cultivate this human capacity of awe and wonder. Keeping in mind, says Benedict, that all who despise God will burn in hell for their sins. Well, this is not a very nice language (laughs) for today's secular mind, but... Here what I read is that by valuing little this deep awareness of the Absolute, by disregarding it, we will end up attaching ourselves to the relative survival-conditioned necessities. And this will make us being at mercy of our thoughts, our self-will, our desires, which ultimately causes confusion and suffering. He guards himself at every moment from sins and vices, Benedict continues, of thought or tongue, of hand or foot, of self-will or bodily desire. So let us cultivate the capacity of detaching from our thoughts, words, actions and strivings because this attachment is absolutely necessary for doing signs of profound quality, because it empowers us to put thoughts, words, actions, strivings, self-will and desires always under sceptical scrutiny, as they are most likely determined and conditioned by our relative experience of reality as living beings. And this sceptical attitude even of one's own thoughts, words, actions, and desires, is a a core virtue of good scientific practice. Benedict goes on saying, Let him recall that he is always seen by God in heaven, that his actions everywhere are in God's sight, and reported by angels every hour. Now, according to this biblical worldview, The totality and absoluteness of reality is expressed by an omniscient being, an observer that sees everything and that has messengers reporting to him or her. And today we would express this saying that everything is in relationship. All is connected and hence all our feelings, thoughts and actions have ultimately a universal effect. So, this awareness makes us move from an egocentric towards a heterocentric way of doing science. Centered at reality itself, out of respect and reverence. And here's where I think the notion of fear of God does does have some sense to me. Namely, that we should utterly be very cautious and fearful about how our scientific research and technological applications might impact on the totality of reality. So, this experience of Timor-Dei makes us thus being directly aware of one's place in the magnitude of space, the magnitude of geological time, of the entire cosmos. Our scientific advancements so far, have been very helpful in cultivating our humility as human species. Because they have helped us to avoid falling in a simple anthropomorphism that puts the human being at the center of the world. Science has situated the Earth among a group of planets circling a star at the margins of one of many galaxies of the Universe. It has placed us humans in the eons-long open-ended evolution of living species. It has made us confront with the fact that we are not even masters of our own thoughts and that many of our actions are driven by our unconscious. Science has even shown that rational thought, what we imagine to be unique to human, is something that machines can do better. But we know that these advancements can also provide us with the mirage that we maybe ultimately unravel all the mysteries and the functionings of the universe, the so-called theory of everything that many scientists are after, so as to take advantage from this knowledge of this theory of everything. Lord, my heart is not exalted. My eyes are not lifted up, and I have not walked in the ways of the great, nor gone after the marvels beyond me. Does this psalm say, and that Benedict quotes at the beginning of, of this chapter? So the experience of Timor Dei thus makes us directly aware of both the capacities and the limitations of human action. Cognition and understanding. And also of our intimate relationship and connection with the whole of reality, that all our thoughts and actions have an ultimate ultimate universal effect in this cosmos. If we do science subject to our thoughts, self-will, and desires, conditioned by our limiting aims based on benefit, profit, gain. Utility, control, power, etc., etc., we will not discover truth. We will not be transparent to truth. Truth will not shine through scientific theories and technological applications. We will be actually a hindrance to truth. So, the experience or awareness expressed in this term of Timor Dei helps us to respect and to revere all reality and its intrinsic freedom to live in harmony with it and not be driven by the desire to control or to dominate it. Human ecologist and biotechnologist Ulrich Löning from the University of Edinburgh called this way of doing science convivial science. So instead of attempting to overcome natural constraints, instead to overriding biological barriers, barriers, in order to gain more control over organisms and systems, we should try to work with the natural processes. And for this more convivial science to be manifest, we need to first silence our own interpretations and interests. But I have calmed and quieted myself, does the psalm quoted by Benedict continue. I am like a weaned child on the mother's lap, like a weaned child I am content. So this is the wisdom we need to conduct research of profound quality. Let me quote also Ken Wilber, in his book The Marriage of Sense and and Soul, if you are an orthodox scientist, I would only suggest that as, as you have a thousand times in the past, when you were working on a problem, let curiosity and wonder bubble up. But in this case, Don't focus on a specific solution. Simply let wonder fill your being until it takes you out of yourself and into the staggering mysteries that is the existence of the world. A mystery that facts alone can never begin to fill. If spirit does exist, it will lie in that direction, the direction of wonder the direction that intersects the very heart of science itself. And you will find in this adventure that the scientific method will never be left behind in the search for an ultimate ground. I think this first step is, as I said, the one that puts the background of all the others in which I have in, I interpret it in this way, as from a point of view of the su- practice of science or the attitude of the scientist. I think I will I, I will continue a little bit with the second with with the second step. Because it it is very linked to this attitude that the first step expressed. And again, I will try to to reflect on it from the point of view of the scientist doing their work. The second step of humility is that a person loves not his own will, not takes pleasure in the satisfaction of his desires. Secundus humilitatus gradus es si propiam quis non amans volutatem desideria sua non delectetur implere. This, I would say in Latin. Now I think this is a, a very difficult attitude for a scientist. Because when you conduct a scientific study it is almost inevitable that we initiate our research, bringing our own preconceptions in it, influenced by the school of thought that we we have been trained in, and we start with particular expectations in mind. We desire certain outcomes of our experiments. We want a certain scientific theory to be true in order to reach this and not other conclusions. This is not bad in itself. Benedict doesn't tell us we shouldn't have will of our own and be just programmed to blindly obey orders. He says we shouldn't love our own will. Non amans voluntatem desideria sua. We shouldn't be attached to our own will. We shouldn't only take pleasure in satisfying our desires, stemming from an egocentric attitude. So, we scientists need to overcome this attachment to our theories, expectations, desires, etc., as this degrades what science is really all about. Self-will has its punishment, voluntas abet penam, does Benedict quote from the Acts of Martyrs. So it's bad science to hack up experimental results only to satisfy the outcomes we would like to get. Or even worse, to support a belief system we adhere to or to gain egotistic advantage over the other let's say, secret military research. Science has been utilized with these egocentric objectives in mind, these self-will-based objectives in mind. And it only has caused tremendous harm. So we are not isolated entities, we are part of an interrelated cosmos, what the first step was saying is. we cannot just do whatever pleases us from this egocentric or ethnocentric or even nation centric or human centric view. So as scientists, we are subject to, works to to we are subject to work towards the common good of all humanity, of all living beings, and the environment, and for the entire cosmos and creation. So I think this detachment from egoic will and desire is also linked to, to the idea of vulnerability and gets us away from arrogance, which is very common among scientists, as I said, of assuming that we are right because we possess, we possess the truth. We need to become vulnerable... so that we might get out out transformed from the science we do, to let truth transform us. Not not that we want to get to grips with the truth, so that it satisfies our, our preconceptions. Consequently, we scientists... Need to create the necessary objective distance of that which we study, as not to be attached to our own will, to our own, to our desires. And in other words, what we have to be is to be open to what reality tells us, to imitate. By our actions that saying of the Lord, I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, so as to be instruments by which reality can shine through us as it is and not as how we desire it to be. This Gospel versicle follows the dialogue of Jesus with his disciples where they ask him how they can know what to do and he tells do not work for food that spoils instead work for the food that lasts for eternal life that is put the mind on that what is absolute the absolute freedom of reality that open attitude towards letting one to be surprised by what actually is and what we did not expect the the inevitable and its constraints, the necessitas is this is the great power of the scientist necessitas parit corona constraint wins the crown so the the, th- the third step of humility is that a person submits to his superior in all obedience for love of God. gradus est ut quis se So in a knowledge and innovation society as the one that we are living today and which in which we scientists conduct our scientific investigations. Who are these Mayi, which means those greater than us, to which we need to consent with total attentive listening, which is the etymology of the word obediencia, obaudire, attentive listening. They are not superiors of a rigid hierarchy anymore but they are the more experienced peers in a loose network or holarchy of researchers of our community to which we submit our ideas, our hypotheses, our project proposals, our research results. So science is not an isolated activity in which we do what pleases us. Science is an intrinsic collective activity uh, collective effort not only of small research teams or of larger project consortia but also done in a, in a wide community of researchers crossing disciplines to which we submit our work for scrutiny and approval and also at society at large and this collective activity of science For it to be of profound quality cannot be done in an an atmosphere of rivalry and competition, of self interest, benefit, self interested benefit and utility. It has to to be done in an atmosphere of gratuity and love. For the love of God, says Benedict. Prodei amore. And to stress, this aspect of obediencia that Benedict Benedict refers to St. Paul's letter to the Philippians saying he became obedient even to death. And this versicle is in the context of Christ's kenosis his uh, self-emptying. And if we look at, at at this letter just a few versicles before We read, live in harmony by showing love for each other, be united in what you think as if you were only one person, don't be jealous or proud, but be humble and consider others more important than yourself. Care about them as much as you care about yourself and think the same way as Christ Jesus thought. So what what do we have here again? An atmosphere of love, showing love for each other. That we are not isolated, but united. Be united as you were only one person. That we are to put aside rivalry and arrogance. Don't be jealous or proud. That actually every other is our superior, beyond hierarchy. Consider others more important than yourself. And that we should be heterocentric. So we care care about them as much as you care about yourself. And that we should experience this same self-emptying, the same kenosis as Jesus Christ. Think the same way Jesus Christ thought. So I think if this obediencia is lived in this more kenotic spirit, I think then it leads to a relationship of respect, which li- re- literally means looking back at, and this links us back with attention. So so bound, but now it's an attent- it's an attentive looking at putting full attention back to those more experienced than us and then to do what needs to be done without procrastination. And then we get to the fourth step. The fourth degree, the fourth step of humility is that in disobedience Under difficult, unfavorable, or even unjust conditions, his heart quietly embraces suffering. Actually, the Latin says, patientiam amplicatu, which is embraces patience. Okay. So, this attentive listening that we just had in the step four, this omniomedientia, which would be following one's deep intuitions uncompromisingly contrary to what is fashionable or easy to publish. This brings forth difficulties, contradictions and injustice. They are an inevitable part of scientific research. I think they are even what eventually yield worthy research results. So very often, I personally have felt unjustly treated when I sent a paper for publication that was rejected, or I submitted a project proposal that did not get funding, or when I applied for a research position for which I was not selected, or when I gave a talk that was misunderstood and heavily criticised. And often, resentment is the first reaction to this. But Benedict tells us to embrace patience, patientiam, ampli- which is a loving attitude. In Catalan, in the Catalan language, also in Spanish language, we have this saying that la paciencia es la madre de la ciencia, which literally means patience is the mother of science. The closest to this I could find in English may, would be good things come to those who wait. <laughs> but I think the image of patience as a mother fits very nicely with this Benedictine advice to embrace patience as we embrace our mother. So, so it's not a violent uh, stubbornness of I am right and whatever the other says, I stick to it together with the resentment of the injustice suffered, we do not have to react to difficulties and injustice with further harm and injustice, because they rejected my paper, now I do the same to these people. Getting into jealousy and rivalry, competing for resources. No, what I read from Benedict is a loving embrace, meaning Deep in me I feel that this should be the way to proceed. I may be wrong, but I feel it is worth to confront the difficulties, to learn from them and continue pushing, pushing this line of research forward. And Benedict also tells us to do it with a quietened mind. Uh, I don't know if it is, is how it is translated in English, but he says, Tarsite Consciencia. Tacite Conscientia. So, so, this is what we have so far. If you want to do deep, signs of deep quality, empty yourself of your egoic self-will and desire, quiet your mind, be transparent to truth, to receive reality as it is, don't isolate yourself and listen attentively to your experienced peers of your scientific community. Communication is consubstantial to to scientific research. But ultimately, do the kind of research that you feel in your most inmost being that you have to do, beyond fashionable ideas and easy and quick results. And then, with a loving embrace, patiently endure the difficulties and injustices. Benedict, I think, seems to give special importance to this patient endurance as a key ingredient of the virtue of humility as he supports these steps with many, many scriptural quotations from the New Testament and the Psalms, starting with this Gospel versicle, anyone who perseveres to the end, qui perseverabit in infinem, will be saved. Ic erit. Which summarizes this dimension of humility. So resistance, perseverance, with conviction it will eventually pay out. I think in principle... Scientific research strengthens very much this dimension of humility. But the current pressure to obtain results quickly and to generate many publications is working against it. I think long-term research following very creative ideas that challenge current thinking, and which necessarily is based on patiently enduring the adversities and difficulties, is currently very hard to pursue. Well, Benedict would say, "Fair enough," and then you would say, "But do it anyway." If you feel you have to do, and if you find more adversities, the better. It will humble you even more during your pursuit, and you will eventually get out of it much more transformed and enriched than by getting constant support and recognition for your ideas. So if Benedict's advice so far has already been very, very challenging, then he asks even for more. And in the fifth step he says, the fifth step of humility is that a person does not conceal from his abbot any sinful thoughts entering his heart or any wrongs committed in secret but rather confesses them humbly. So there is a sincere acceptance of one's own's fault and mistakes, an acceptance that is not full if it is not exteriorized, if set free from one's own heart, made visible from the secrecy of wrongdoing. In scientific research, as in all facets of life, we make mistakes and fail. And This step asks for recognizing our own mistakes and wrongdoings and not only recognizing them, but to share them, to exteriorize them. We may go down the wrong path, and it will be much more difficult to set us back on the right path of our research if we are not open to share our weaknesses and mistakes. It, It is a very difficult attitude to accept one's own one's own sin, or hamartia, which is the Greek word and would literally means missing the mark. In, in, in the Greek tragedy, hamartia is commonly understood to refer to the, the protagonist's error or flaw that leads to a chain of plot actions culminating in a reversal from the good fortune to a bad fortune. Now, the system of science in which we scientists operate does not value negative results, wrong hypotheses, errors, hence we scientists tend not to mention them. We hide them. And brought to an extreme, this can yield publications with tinkered results, with falsities, which can bring forth unnecessary injustice and suffering. to err, to make mistakes, is an essential part of science and of the growth of any scientist. So, so we have been warned in the previous step that the journey of scientific research, if followed with a sincere heart, is never easy, and therefore we shouldn't tread the path alone. Nobody's perfect and doing research also means to make errors and to fail and to start again and this is something that we need to assume. And for this reason we need someone that guides and orient us, whom to trust, with whom we feel comfortable to expose our ignorance on some subject or aspect without fear of being judged. Not to share our weaknesses and mistakes openly, if we don't do that, this can lead the scientist on a wrong path and then it will be much more difficult to set the research right again. And Benedict links this revealing of one's mistake and wrongdoings with that of patience, because trust and hope. He says, make known your way to the Lord and hope in him. And also, uh, with the certainty to be loved, with an unlimited, endless love. He, He says, his mercy is forever. And to be truly forgiven. You have forgiven the wickedness of my heart. And not to be judged. I think this laying bare of ourselves purifies us and makes us grow whenever this is linked with the true act of unconditional love. And then this going down actually makes us climb up and makes us progress. And Benedict doesn't ask for public exposure or scorn. He just says to share it with the abbot. That is, with with a person of deep human quality whom we trust with whom we feel comfortable to expose our mistakes and our ignorance. But it is important to to share, to exteriorize, not to attach oneself to any thought or desire, but to be open, to allow oneself to be led by others, but without fearing to be judged and ridiculized. Benedict uses those metaphors that best speak to the people of his time. The metaphor of the Divine, the Absolute, as a Lord to which we openly expose our faults, And he uses the image of a personal relationship between us and the Divine. This can help, but it can also be misleading. Another way to look at this step is that what we call mistakes or wrongdoings are actually the result of absolutizing the relative dimension of our existence bound to our necessities and strivings. To trust and to acknowledge, to be patient and to wait with hope, is to regain this awareness of the absolute, which is set free from our needs and desires and which we cannot tinker with. It is only when we recognize our repeated absolutizing of the relative and we lay it bare by sharing this recognition with our fellow human beings, that we can be free of the burden of our our faults and be able to experience this unlimited love. Again, we have this idea that to be vulnerable is an awe and adore to allow oneself to be transformed. Maybe another way to understand this dimension of humility is to look at the idea of HANSEI in Japanese culture. HANSEI, which means self-reflection, is a central idea in Japanese culture, meaning to acknowledge one's own mistakes and to pledge improvement. There is a sim- this is similar to a German proverb that says, Selbst- Selbsterkenntnis ist der erste Schritt zur Besserung. Well, the closest translation to English would be self-awareness is the first step to improvement. Hansei also incorporates the concept of greeting success with modesty and humility. And to stop Hansei means to stop learning. With Hansei, one never becomes convinced of one's own superiority and feels there's always more room or need for further improvement. (coughs) And then, Benedict says, the sixth step of humility is that a monk is content with the lowest and most menial treatment and regards himself as a poor and worthless workman in whatever task he is given. Now, the way this step is expressed is at first sight, very tough and difficult except for the secular mind, not least for scientists. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I, I resort to the Tao Te Ching to help me to go through this step, because it's about contentment and about being content of what we have and are. And so we read in the Tao Te Ching, be content with what you have and are, and no one can despoil you. Hence it's not about resignation, uh, the acceptance of something undesirable but inevitable, but about the liberation from our envy and permanent unsatisfaction to liberate us from this. So Benedict expresses this contentment in a very extreme way, even with the lowest and most menial treatment omnibilitate ad ex, extremitate even considering ourselves poor and worthless workmen operarium malum et indignum even when we should cultivate even then we should cultivate contentment now if we are able capable of contentment even in these extreme circumstances then we will surely achieve true richness and enduring satisfaction. The Tao Te Ching, we read, to be content with what one has is to be rich, or he who has once known the contentment that comes simply through being content will never again be otherwise than contented. To support this, Benedict quotes versicles 22 and 23 from Psalm 72-73, which is a wisdom psalm of the 10th century that expre- before Christ, which, that expresses a very human concern that, that has beset humanity through the ages. Why do those that commit injustice and create suffering in the world happened to live so well in wealth and health. It seems to pay off to act like them. Envy kicks in then. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to men. They are not plagued by human ills. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. (laughs) Envy and unsatisfaction is also very present in scientific world. We tend not to be content with what we have and are. We envy other scientists' positions and salaries. The resources available to other scientists and other scientific institutions. The science policies of other countries, we think our situation is unjust. But the same psalm hints at what is wrong in this way of thinking. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood the final destiny. So egoic thought is not capable of resolving these issues. The understanding required we can only achieve by entering the sanctuary of God, that is, through contemplation, entering the temple. The gain we achieve in this way, the richness we get, is much better than winning the lottery, as once I heard in a talk of Father Lawrence, much better than the material wealth we were in envying. Because it is not getting a professorship or having a better salary or disposing of more resources which fulfills us as scientists and human beings. It is science done out of love and service that that yields science of quality and enriches the human being throughout. And then comes the final push which brings us down to earth. The seventh step of humility is that a person not only admits with his tongue, but is also convinced in his heart that he is inferior to all and of less value. So when we have climbed the ladder up to this step of humility, we have reached the very bottom. So Benedict describes it as a feeling feeling in the innermost being of ourselves, our heart, our core, intimo cordis. That we are the lowest and most despicable of all. That is, that we are nothing. And just talking about it, as I am doing now, does not mean that we've got there. Non solum sua lingua pronunciat, not only saying, talking about it. No, we must have the intimate experience of this nihilistic feeling. I think this is the essence of humility, to touch humus, to, to eat the dust. And this is, tot- this is in total opposition of the strife of an academic career, where we try to build up and enhance our egos in order to live in our ivory towers. So Benedict's language is, again, very extremist and very appalling for the contemporary mind. But this judgment is obviously a judgment passed by our ego. So the feeling expressed in these verses might well be very positive, even liberating. Actually, Benedict's scriptural citations point at a deeper understanding of what goes on with this feeling. Ego autem sum vermis et non homo. I am truly a woman, not a man. Scorned by men and despised by the people. So at this degree of humility, we are, I think, at the threshold of transcending our ego. But our ego still makes the final appearance and creates this intense feeling of extreme misery. And there is obviously a danger to get stuck at this point and not to move on. And this can be very damaging for our psyche and our healthy functioning as an individual. Benedict quotes uh, Psalm 87 I was exalted then I was humbled and overwhelmed with confusion. So, this is why at this point I think it's necessary, absolutely necessary, to do the definite step, which is the step of faith into complete ego-decentered experience. Go, going the other way is not an option. If I go lifting me up, exalting myself, believing I am someone, I eventually up end, end up in confusion and despair. Then he cites the Psalm 118, 119, depending. It is a blessing that you have humbled me so that I can learn your commandments. So I think this verse hints at the positive side of all of this. It is actually good to reach this low point of our ego-decentering process, Because when we transcend this ego, that experience to be nothing and break through, then the negative feeling that this egoic state creates, and the negative feeling that this egoic state creates, when we are able to go through it, then we are able to learn your commandments. Diska tua, which amounts to say that we learn the value of not acting to our egoing will and desire, but of harmony and communion with the flow of things as they are. Convivial science at its best. And I think here the wisdom of the Tao Te Ching helps us again when it says, being substanceless, it can enter even where is no space. That is how I know the value of action that is actionless. So, to experience oneself as inferior to all and of less value is actually to experience perfection. A perfection that does not yield superiority or arrogance, but extreme humbleness and a sincere and loving service to others. That is a true sign of, of true sign of science done with perfection. That is a science of profound quality. So we, we, have, we have seen in the in the previous talk all these attitudes that Benedict asked us to cultivate for humility to grow in each of us. Detachment. Attentive listening and respect, out of love. Patience, out of a silent awareness. (coughs) Trustful acknowledgement of one's errors and mistakes. Contentment and self-transcendence. Now, as I said in this third talk, I will focus on the remaining steps, as they show how we should cultivate humility in context of a community, which is also an essential aspect for scientific communities. So in the the eighth step, we read that a monk does only what is endorsed by the common rule of the monastery and the example set by his superiors. So, I think having reached the level of humanity that has yielded this ego decenteredness by which the scientist has now completely accepted himself, he he or she is now capable of truly accepting the others in the scientific community as they really are. And to see these Rich and to see the riches that that can be gained by collaborating with others in the shared scientific activities and research projects, building upon the respective complementarity of the members of a research team. So that means that first of all, one has to recognize oneself within a scientific community that over the centuries has yielded the knowledge, which has now become heritage of all humanity, and respecting the good practices built up over time by working together. So here, Benedict, I think, draws upon two kinds of authority. One is the authority of the latter, the communis regula, so the rule of the community. So this is the agreed-upon common experience and best practices of a community along history, which has been written down in the form of rules and norms. And then there's the authority of the people. Majorum exempla. So the lived experience of of actual present-day community leaders. Both both forms of authority are needed and they complement to each other. But they are also subject to each other. The elders, the leaders, are also expected to follow this common rule as anyone else. And the rule is not something rigid. It is subject to wise discernment by these elders and leaders. So this flexible leadership is also what this thing expressed in the, in the Tao Te Ching. We read that to become straight, let yourself be bent. Or the yielding conquers the resistant and the soft conquers the hard. Or truly what is stiff and heart is a companion of death. What is soft and weak is a companion of life. So we should not read this step of humility, I think, as institutional or organizational rigidity. And this would make no sense for today's scientific communities. Usually, organizational rigidity goes very against the free spirit of of scientific inquiry. But as he advised that we can we need to be open to learn from those that have treaded the path before us, recognising with sincerity their contributions, their successes and their failures. Then we get to the ninth step of humility. The ninth step of humility is that a monk controls his tongue and remains silent, not speaking unless asked a question. Well, I think here what I read is that we shouldn't go into a scientific conversation with our own ideas and opinions and theories up front, without leaving room for ourselves to be convinced and transformed by others. So when this ego decentered attitude, when working in a community, is to listen first what the others have to say instead of us dominating the conversation and trying to impose our own thoughts and opinions. And uh, to be able to listen what it asks is for silence. And this is not only absence of noise, it is the absence of pre-established ideas when I go into the the conversation. And I think in scientific scientific debates we need to create space. And we need to create room and we create, create silence for the ideas to flow in communion, in this scientific community. So... So, for this, we need to hold back, to restrain, the taciturnity, silence, to let others speak, to be respectful, to listen with full attention. First, (coughs) I think scientific communication to be of good quality has to be has to be done out of this silence and stillness, out of this humility. It has to be calm and has to be quiet. And I think these are qualities that are more and more absent in today's conferences and scientific events. And they are also absent more and more from today's research centres and labs. I think scientists today hardly have silence and stillness and time to do their work. Benedict elaborates this step further with a couple of scriptural references. First, he takes from the Proverbs, in a flood of words, you will not avoid sinning. So a flood of words does not hide the weakness or incorrectness of our idea or our argument or our theory. If you are unsure about something, better hold back. Don't publish too early. Let the ideas mature, let them consolidate. Benjamin Franklin said, here comes the orator (coughs) with his flood of words and his drop of reason. And I think this attitude is getting in contradiction with current publication trends, which I think are problematic for science. I think science communication right now (coughs) has fallen victim of the pressure to publish in order to survive in this institutional system of science. And this has generated, very much speaking, a lot of publications, and seldomly with any real significant contribution to the advancements of science. This step here also reminds me of a a Spanish saying that says... Mm. Por la boca muere el pez, which means that the fish dies by the mouth, which reminds us that as as with fishes who get caught with the fish hook, opening our mouth too much or at the wrong time involves a serious danger. So the person who does an excessive talking may end up being victim of his own verbosity, and publishing too early may lead to bad science, and it may lead to untruthful results. Uh, and here Benedict's second quotation, now from the Psalms, may hint at another dimension of this type of humility. He says, a talkative man goes about aimlessly on earth, Benedict, Benedict cites the Latin Bible, the Latin Vulgata, which uses the expression vir linguosus, which means talkative, loquacious man. But if you look at the psalm in the Hebrew text, there is a word that actually means evil, evil speaker, slanderer, talebearer. And some translations use this word instead. So here's another aspect that I think that is not spreading false claims for personal profit. So I think a current concern in the scientific community is that of those publications that had to be retracted because of the mistakes they include and the wrong conclusions that they claim. And for certain disciplines such as those related to health, for instance, this can be a very serious problem, because many of these publications continue to be cited even after having been retracted. And, and there have been studies done, and many of these retractions are because of poor procedures, not sufficiently tested ideas, or because scientists have rushed into the publication. And, but a recent, a recent study has also revealed that the majority of retracted scientific publications are actually the result of deliberate misconduct. And I think that is a real problem in, in scientific communication today, and scientists have to be very careful in that sense and what they say. because. Scientific claims are often taken by society as if they were set in stone, and therefore there should be no place for scientists who go about aimlessly on Earth. So, non dirigitur super terra, that is, here we could understand this term terra, earth, as this relative dimension of reality which is linked to our self-will, our desires, our strivings. And which the current system of rewards of science does promote so much. Then we get to the this the tenth step, where he says that a person is not getting given is not given to ready laughter, for it is written only a fool raises his voice in laughter. So science communication has to be done out of respect. I mean, we already mentioned that humility and respect are intimately linked together. Obviously, the sense of humor and to laugh is very positive. But we have to be careful to not to cross this subtle line in which, in which we can turn humor into mockery or scorn. Which may offend and hurt the people. And it is easy to discredit something or some or idea of someone by making fun of him or her, showing no respect. But often behind this attitude, I think lies hid, a hidden ignorance, lies hidden in ignorance and the fear that this ignorance is laid bare somehow. Only a fool raises his voice in laughter is the wisdom quote used by Benedict, taken from the Ecclesiasticus. And this is only a a, a bit of the verse. This versicle actually is followed by But the wise will smile quietly. So, we have again the... Uh, in, 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 in Latin it's vir autem sapiens vix taciter ridemit taciter ridemit uh, 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 smiles quietly. There, there again we have the taciturnitas the concept of taciturnitas or taciturnity which is discretion and prudence in the use of language which is a central aspect in Benedict's discussion on humility. And I think it's also very important for the for scientific community which grounds uh, the scientific communication on peer review we have to be uh, prudent and uh, discreet and uh, polite in the language we use when we do our peer review so so the humble scientist is the one that listens to or reads the work and ideas of others with respect even if they are in sharp contradiction with his own view- point of view who takes them seriously what they do and which is calm and prudent in the criticism it provides. There's another chapter in the rule about the reception of guests where Benedict says all guests who arrive be received like Christ. So scientists should be welcoming to new ideas that initially might look strange, they have to welcome the stranger. Benedict further says that in the reception of the poor and the pilgrims, the greatest care and solicitude should be shown. For as far as the rich are concerned, the very fear which they inspire wins respect for them. So what I read here is that it is easy to accept and to praise the work of some famous researcher or of a team of working a very prestigious university or research lab but it is to the less known scientist which we need to put more care and attention and respect to their work The 11th step of humility is that the monk speaks gently and without laughter, seriously and with becoming modesty, briefly and reasonably, but without raising his voice. So there is a Gallic proverb, which I like very much, that says, Aber achbekan is aber gumae which means, say but little, but say it well. I think this proverb summarizes the quality that any scientific communication should have, either oral or written. I think to communicate is, to do communication without going off on a tangent, Getting to the point, after thoughtful reflection, not rushing into it, clearly and concisely and with honesty, and communicate well, without fixing the data and tinkering with the results, always avoiding any unfounded speculations. Benedict, in this stamp results to a wisdom that goes beyond the Christian scriptures, in this case, quoting a saying compiled in the Enchiridion of the Roman jurist Sextus Pomponius, so a wisdom of the Latin world that says, a wise man is known by his few words. Sapiens paucis verbis inno te testit. So these are these steps that I have grouped together to situate the humility in context of a community. So how, how, to, how to express this, commun- this, this, this humility in the community and, and making the exercise to relate it to the community of scientists and to science communication. But then we get to the twelfth step, the final one. And here he says that a monk always manifests humility in his bearing, no less than in his heart, so that it is evident. Said etiam ipso corporea, in his body he shows the, the, the humility, not only in the heart, but in the whole body. So Benedict's chapter on humility started with this gospel versicle that said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now this versicle is also the ending of the parable of the Pharisee and the publican that he uses to support this bodily expression of the 12th step of the ladder towards humility when the publican says i am not worthy to look up in heaven to look up to heaven i think this also resonates with this psalm used at the beginning of the chapter lord my heart is not exalted my eyes are not lifted up So this image of the monk with his head bowed, what he says here, with his head bowed and his eyes cast down, whether he sits, walks or stands in the oratory, the monastery or the garden, on a journey or in the field or anywhere else. This, This image, I think, is a powerful metaphor for this integrated, holistic expression of humility in all dimensions of the person because it makes it visually viewed to direct the sight towards the humus, towards the earth. But obviously, we should not take it literally. For the scientists, I think, for a scientist, this metaphor, I think, expresses having reached a maturity at which one overcomes the tension between Appearance and reality, and which manifests itself in the, in the whole being of the scientist, in his acting, in our acting and speaking, in how we treat ourselves and how we treat others, in our communication, in our collaboration, in all these dimensions. So a scientist that has reached this point. I think is then a scientist that is perceived to have sincere humility, which is not fake or superficial, and which is reflected in his or her whole person. And then he ends the chapter with a few more versicles. And a couple of, of aspects I think are important to stress in these concluding versicles of Benedict on humility that I think are also relevant for scientific research. First is that by cultivating this virtue of humility, we we will end up acting without effort and as though naturally from habit. Now, you read this and this is obviously again a paradox with respect to all what we have just seen in the steps of humility. Particularly this fourth step, where you have to be summoned to endure patiently adversities and injustice. But I think it is this natural effortless action, which is a true experience of good scientific practice, done of profound quality. When you love what you do, when you feel this is the way you have to go, and then You are in harmony with your inner call and open to whatever is. And there's no actual effort involved anymore. So the motivations to do your research are not external anymore, are not external motivations for ambitions or out of fear. Instead, the scientist's motivation for for conducting research will be out of good habit and with a genuine service for others. But maybe more important is this, is this other aspect and that is that the highest summit of humility is perfect love which casts out fear. Because having no fear is to be absolutely free. And this freedom is grounded on a truly disinterested interest, to say it somehow, a des- disinterested interest in our scientific research. One that is grounded in love, which is, would be the term used by Benedict in the Christian language. So, it is a completely ego-decentered and self-emptied interest and motivation to serve and to contribute to the common good and well-being of humanity, of all living beings, and ultimately of all creation. So, in all our scientific activities or inquiries, projects, and our collaborations, and eventually in the technological applications we develop, let us discern where love is pointing at. Because I think there is where we will find the creative freedom in our scientific inquiry through which profound quality can shine. And this brings me back to those practices in science that I mentioned in the beginning of my first talk, the ones that Mike Taylor used to portray science as enforced humility. And I will reflect on them again after having gone through these benedicts 12 steps of humility. So, formal publication. Well, community communication is a key component in scientific inquiry. Our intelligence is shaped through communication. But true communication is not only information transmission. It requires participation, attention, respect, it requires silence, it requires attentive listening, As, important as and attentive listening is as important as truth, truth, truthful speaking. Scientific advancement is not the result of an individual genius. It is fruit of a collective effort based on the continuous sharing and shaping of ideas. So, we should favor signing articles as groups and not as individuals. And in the act of communication, thoughts and ideas are constantly relived and recreated But current practice in formal publication, I think, is being pushed, in in, in, in my view, in the wrong direction, because now the quality of our communication is measured by the number of publications, by the number of citations, by the impact factors of the journals in which we publish, and numerous other indicators that are invented and that are putting at risk the profound quality of science. I think publication must be free. It must be openly accessible. It, not, it should not be subject to business interests. And there are many business interests in, the, in, the, in scientific publication. And we need to listen again to each other, attentively, <coughs> respectfully, in our labs, in conferences, in academic journals. And for this, I need science needs to slow down, to working with longer deadlines, to reduce the number of publications and scientific events to focus more on the quality of the process of inquiry itself and less on the outcome peer review peer review is very valuable but i think it has to be carried in a carried out in an atmosphere of love But the practices that are promoted in the system of science today, which are based on this maximization of number of publications and citations, I think is bringing this system of peer review more and more under stress and great tension. It puts a heavy burden on scholars. And only the less active researchers and less brilliant researchers are willing to do the task of peer review now which compromises the quality of the reviews. And then if peer review is not carried out with attention and respect, then critique becomes superficial and routine, and often sometimes it degrades to nastiness, hiding behind the anonymity of the reviewer. And then, if it is not done with an ego-descented attitude and with an open mind, truly welcoming the stranger, as I said before, and being particularly attentive to the work of those that are not well-known, or from famous labs, or from our own like-minded colleagues, then the system of peer review may reinforce hierarchy and authority and it decreases creativity and it supports conservatism. Then, citing sources. Well, we need to be grateful to those that preceded of us. We need to, to sincere acknowledge that none of our ideas are entirely our own. Science communication is something that is also deployed Science communication is something that is deployed over time. So we communicate with the scientists of the past, and we communicate to the scientists of the future. But again, the current incentives of institutional system of science do also have their effect on how this communication and acknowledge is done, because often citing is done strategically out of an egoic desire to increase the number of citations of articles and the impact factor of journals. So there's a a strategic way to do that. And as well to gain the approval of peer reviewers. So better I cite the work of somebody who may review my paper. The scientific method itself. I think we need to enrich the scientific method, which currently, and here comes Goethe, the Goethe's inspiration, so we need to enrich these scientific methods, which emphasizes the objective detachment required for carrying out the more analytical task, with methods that help us to dissolve the subject-object boundary in order to let the immediate experience Enrich the scientific investigation. So before asking a question or addressing a problem, quiet your mind, be aware of your self-will, of your desires, of your expectations, of your fears, of your biases, and let them let they, lay them aside. When doing the initial research and inquiry, allow love to guide it, disinterested interest. Listen attentively to what you feel you need to do and be always aware of those of the values that are orienting your research. When you state your hypotheses be transparent to the absolute dimension of reality be open to be transformed by your initial inquiry. And in your hypothesizing do not project on it your expectations. When carrying out your experimentation, practice a gentle empiricism, which is also inspired by Goethe. Do your experiments with respect and care, work for and with reality and creation with its intrinsic freedom, not aiming at controlling it, dominating it, putting it under extreme conditions. When analyzing the experimental results, collaborate, communicate, share, analyze the results with others, particularly with those that provide a fresh view and complementary perspective. Silence your point of view to let room for that of others. And to interpret the results, sit with the answers and situate the particular details into the big picture by contemplating it. Let everything sink in, give it time to mature, and discern to where the answers are pointing at, and if you are called to follow that inquiry or not. And then share the results, but without rush, concisely, truthfully, and share also your mistakes and wrong paths. And finally, re-evaluate your research with respect to the values that are orienting it and think of potential applications and technology that is eventually beneficial to humanity and the world at large. Replicability. Well, don't be jealous of your research. Share it as as, openly as possible. Let go of your possessions and turn it into a true heritage of all humanity. Don't hide your mistakes, share your faults, let others build on your inquiries and experimentations. Falsifiability. Well, Be sincere with the strengths and weaknesses of your research. Share them so that others know where to work for improving it. Make your research a true witness of a collective effort done by a scientific community rather than by isolated individuals. So this is the advice that I take home from Benedict's ancient wisdom. So, as to make scientific practice not only enforce humility, which is not a word that I very much like, there's too much violence in it, but turning the practice, but also to, to cultivate humility through scientific inquiry of profound quality. So, as to turning the practice of science into a spiritual practice of deep value for everyone in today's society and in order to yield fruits that eventually serve human well-being and are respectful to all life forms and to the environment. To conclude, I'd like to share with you a quote from a book that at the time I was finishing my PhD research, and this was on automated theory proving. At that time, I was uh, very much shaped by the scientific worldview. And this little book helped me to start transcending the duality between science and spirituality. And the quote says as this, at all costs, the Christian must convince the heathen And the atheist that God exists in order to save his soul. At all costs, the atheist must convince the Christian that the belief in God is but a childish and primitive superstition, doing enormous harm to the cause of true social progress. And so they battle and storm and bank away at each other. Meanwhile, the Taoist sage sits quietly by the stream Perhaps with a book of poems, a cup of wine, and some painting materials, enjoying the Tao to his heart's content, without ever worrying whether or not the Tao exists. The sage has no time; has no need to affirm the Tao. He is far too busy enjoying it. This is from a little book by a, a logician, Raymond Smullyan, that. I knew from his logic, and I was surprised when I read him talking about Taoism. So, so I read it, and it was significant to me. So what I wanted to express with this quote is that doing scientific research, I think, is a truly enjoyable and enriching task. It allows one to openly wonder about the universe, the mysteries of existence, to become fascinated by the inquiry of why the things are as they are, to be thrilled by each new discovery on the way, and maybe I shouldn't use the word discovery, I shouldn't use about every new creation that we do in our research on the way, and in addition when... And, and in addition when with each new scientific advancement we manage to develop the sort of technology that helps to improve our ways of living in human societies, then I think this surely makes the scientific research a wonderful activity that uplifts the human spirit. If, one could, if only one could do science sitting quietly by the stream with a cup of wine, enjoying the marvel of it all to one's heart's content. So, I'm now in the middle of my scientific career and I would like to live the rest of of my life as a scientist by cultivating this contemplatively driven science or practice of science. I'm always talking to a convinced audience, but uh, I would like to create the community with my fellow scientists. uh, and see if they feel also this calling to follow this kind of science and this kind of doing science sitting quietly by the stream with a cup of wine and uh, and i know that there are many initiatives around the world that already go in that direction and maybe i wanted to come my concluding thoughts to giving some positive view of of some of these directions that are going. And if you know someone, some initiatives as well that I don't am aware of, then then please tell me. So one is, for example, the Association for Contemplative Mind in Higher Education in the United States. So this is a multidisciplinary academic association uh, with the membership of educators, Administrators, staff, students, researchers, and other professionals around the the world of the universities and higher education that are committed to the transformation of higher education through the recover, the recovery and the development of the contemplative dimension of teaching, learning, and knowing. It would be nice to see something also coming out like this in Europe. Or in other places of the world, but I think this is a very interesting work that this, this association is doing. In Germany, some years ago, I heard about the Slow Science Academy. I don't know if it is still active or not, but the idea was there to gather groups of basic researcher, researchers alongside selected people from from science affine areas and to offer, offer them space and time and resources to do their main job, to discuss, to wonder, to think. Then in, the, in, in Belgium at the, at, the, at the Free University of, of Brussels, there is a group of, of, of teachers, of, of lecturers at the at the university that have called themselves l'atelier des, des chercheurs, the, the, the workshop of the of the researchers. And they have made a manifesto about the the excellence of the universities. Now universities are striving now a lot of to excellence, to excellence and excellence. And they were promoting that we should be unexcellent researchers and unexcellent uh, uh, lecturers. Then in Catalonia there's this uh, this platform called Conscious Country, País Conscien, uh, in which I participate, and this is a platform that has been grown out of a very interesting initiative by the Catalan government uh, between 2011 and 2015. Uh, the Catalan government. Uh, 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 gave the responsibility to to 500 uh, experts, lecturers, civil servants, activists, um, businessmen, and other volunteers uh, to organize a national plan for values and how values should shape the future society. And uh, having a very... Post materialistic point of view of these values. And out of these plan of values, the people that worked on that, this platform came out of a Conscious Country that tries to make network all people that are working to uh, raise this level of consciousness or this contemplative dimension in all tasks, not only in science but in other areas.
1: Then obviously there's meditatio
0: and the outreach that meditatio does that is a very important task also in that direction and probably there are many more that are coming out in many places of the world that uh, I'm not aware of but I think I think uh, the time is ripe where these things are coming up and that may help us to, as, as uh, you Jaume were mentioning, create the enough critical mass in society to sustain this contemplative dimension. So, to finish, I am hopeful that we might recover this contemplative dimension in our scientific inquiry. And I think it is very, very necessary to do so for humanity today and also for the near and long future. So, That is what I wanted to say to finish. Thank you.